among the more important dates in a, in a survey like we're doing would be Christmas Day, 880, when uh, or where at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, uh, King Charlemagne or King Charles the Great, also known as Charlemagne, uh, King of the Franks, is crowned Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and he's crowned by Pope Leo III. So 880 means that this is uh, middle of the early Middle Ages, also sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages, sometimes referred to as Late Antiquity. Uh, again, this starts, if you, if you start when uh, the barbarians crash the gate, Alaric the Hun, that's 403 AD. If you wait until later to start the Middle Ages, 476, when the last, um, when the last emperor of Rome is deposed, uh, you basically are going to go until about 1000 AD, maybe 1066 if you wait till uh, William I. Again, none of these, <laughs> none of these epochs of time are, are actually, um, few of them are dated to a specific event. But anyway, um, so it's the, it's the middle of the early Middle Ages, and the person being crowned is Charlemagne. So Charlemagne is the grandson of, of uh, Charles the Hammer Martel, uh, who you got to say, Great WWE name here, Charles the Hammer Martel. He is the one that stopped the onslaught, uh, or the, excuse me, he stopped the march of the Muslims at the Battle of Tours in 732. Um, and he is, so Charles the Hammer Martel is the father of Pepin the Short, who is the father of Charlemagne. So you gotta feel bad for Pepin the Short. So his dad is called the Hammer, his son is called the Great, he lives on as the Short. But uh, he actually was a pretty significant leader in his own right. He was uh, appointed king by uh, the Pope. And, um, but it's his son, Charlemagne, that we're focusing on. So at St. Peter's Basilica, and a basilica is a special kind of church. It generally has a special architecture. Um, the uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City today is known as the sort of the premier uh, work of Renaissance architecture. Uh, it's, the St. Peter's Basilica is also sometimes referred to as the most unique church of, in the history of the world, the largest church uh, in uh, Christendom, the greatest church in the world. It's got all these things. Basilicas are significant. St. Peter's Basilica is very significant. But in addition to the architecture that sort of shapes it being called a basilica, it's tied to a saint. And uh, in this case, St. Peter's Basilica is where St. Peter is uh, interred. Additionally, uh, it, it is built upon uh, a graveyard for uh, many of the people that were martyred at uh, the Circus Maximus uh, back in the first and second century. So when they were martyred in the big Colosseum, right, the Fed to the Lions, whatever was happening, their bodies were disposed of in this valley that was not that far away. So when Constantine becomes the emperor, they want to honor these martyrs, these Christians that had been killed. And so they, um, they, they start to um, not venerate, but they start to recognize this, this plot of land as being special. And then uh, they're going to build a basilica over it. Now, that was a much simpler building than is going to be there today. If you go to Rome and you see St. Peter's, Basil Peter's Basilica, that massive facility was built uh, coming into the Reformation. And it will have a very prominent role because uh, Tetzel, 
who Luther is going to clash with. Tetzel is the guy that is raising money to build St. Peter's Basilica by selling indulgences. So indulgences initially were offered. We're going to see this with the First Crusade, uh, sort of a get-out-of-purgatory-free card that you could get for yourself or you could pay for someone else. And so Tetzel's famous line was, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So for certain amounts of money, you could say, well, my parents are, are in purgatory, but I'm going to give this money to build St. Peter's Basilica, and, and then they get out of purgatory. So that that you see today, that St. Peter's Basilica encapsulates the old one that we're talking about in 800 AD. It's built much later. But uh, all of this is very significant. So what has happened is that uh, Pope Leo the, the Third has is, is got some problems. Uh, he is sideways with a number of the powerful Roman families who had been involved in appointing uh, the popes. And um, he apparently has got a, some scandal associated with him for some... Uh, some uh, poor moral choices that he had made, and there are people trying to remove him. So uh, on April uh, 25th, 799, during a, a, a parade he is leading through Rome, calling on people to repent and pray, he is uh, captured and kidnapped by enemies, and they want to cut out his tongue and gouge out his eyes and then kill him. Uh, <clears throat> they don't succeed. They, uh, they sort of get him away to a monastery, but he escapes, and he flees to Charlemagne. And there had been a history of the kings of the Franks sort of siding with the popes and helping them in these difficult situations. And so Pope Leo III flees to Charlemagne and then um, appeals to Charlemagne. And Charlemagne marches in and sort of uh, makes things right, gets some concessions out of Leo uh, in terms of, of repentance. And he also... Um, he also uh, is able to sort of reestablish Pope Leo III uh, as, the, as the, the Pope. So, uh, to his surprise, at least according to his biographer, um, a guy by the name of Einhard, to, Char to Charlemagne's surprise, he's sticking around for a little while because he's got to cross the Alps to get back to where he was, and the weather's not good, so he's sticking around on Christmas Day in uh, in, in a special service. He is praying when Pope Leo III comes up behind him and places on him the crown to be the Holy Roman Emperor. So there has not been an emperor in Rome for several hundred years since, since uh, uh, the, the collapse in 466 or 476, uh, the, the, the last emperor's deposed. There has not been an emperor of Rome. Uh, at least in the western half of the Roman Empire. And, and supposedly Charlemagne has no idea that this is coming. Some say that he did, but um, his biographer says that he didn't. And, and the appointing of Charlemagne to be the Holy Roman Emperor is a very significant event. Not, you know, not significant at the, at the level of uh, the Council of Nicaea, not significant at the level of starting um, the monastic movement, not significant at the level of the Reformation. I mean, there are, there are major turning points. This is not one of them. But, but this is going to mark um, a significant pivot uh, for the way that church and state are going to interact for the next several hundred years. So this is going to make 
Charlemagne, the most important person in Europe. Uh, it is going to, uh, it's going to tick off the emperor, the Roman emperor in the eastern half of the empire, because the, the east, remember, has not fallen. It's not gone into the Middle Ages. And so there's still a Holy Roman, or there's still an emperor of Rome in Constantinople. So this is obviously going to make him mad. Uh, but it, it also, again, it marks this very significant turning point in the West. The relationship between the church and state is going to pivot here, and the papacy is going to gain some significant political power. So all of this is seen as a scandal to some, uh, especially historians looking back. Um, uh, secular historians do not like uh, what has happened here. They, of course, don't like any interplay between church and state. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of that either, but I'm just saying uh, it's seen as a scandal of sun, as some. But um, others see it as the first time that you have this kind of marriage between the church and state, which is not true. I mean, Constantine has done it, and it's happened. We, when we looked at the uh, papacy of uh, Pope Gregory the Great, he has a sort of civil... Uh, authority because he's helping um, he's helping the empire at a very difficult time. So um, anyway, it does mark a difference. So you could say the church starts, you know, in Acts chapter two. We then picked up at the end of the book of Acts, and we watched, looked at the church for the next three hundred years until the rise of Constantine. And so you got that era of the church. It's it's underground. It's persecuted. It's you know it's staying off the radar. Constantine issues the Edict of Milan, and you then are going to have uh, the church gaining credibility and power. Constantine, of course, is a Christian. He's the emperor. So you have lots of Christians sort of emerging as you head for the next 100 uh, years, 150 years to the fall of Rome. You then have what is, quote, unquote, the collapse of Rome or the fall of Rome or however you're going to look at this. You've got this period of time where... Uh, where the church is working behind the scenes. We looked at the Irish and the, the whole how the Irish saved civilization, but you've got sort of quiet work going on. This is now going to mark a new day. So now you have sort of um, almost imperial power being given to the church. And this is something um, very different. So it's going to create, by the way, a debate. Who... Who gains the most when Pope Leo uh, III puts the crown on Charlemagne's head? Is it Charlemagne, who's now the new Holy Roman Emperor, or is it Pope Leo? Because he is the one who has bestowed this power on him. Now, Charlemagne, is, there's, Charlemagne sort of has no equals while he's alive, but there's going to be um, some that are going to say the, the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor are two sort of co-equal offices with different responsibilities. Others are going to say, no, it's the emperor who's in charge. Some are going to say, no, it's the pope that's in charge. This is going to be a, a source of debate. It's going to go on for a while. Uh, but there's no doubt that the papacy gains a lot of, of power in it as, as we're coming into the second half of the early Middle Ages and as we move on for the next 500 years, um, the, the papacy is going to gain a lot of power. Now, this topic... Uh, is complicated. For starters, it's just very hard to be neutral when you're talking about the rise of the Bishop of Rome, the office of the Bishop of Rome, the, the Pope, the Vicar of Christ. 
Um, it's hard to be neutral about it. Roman Catholics have one view about the, the primacy of the Pope and the importance of this. The Orthodox Church, so capital O, Orthodox Church, uh, Greek and Russian and all those, uh, we're going to look at that next time. The, the Orthodox Church is going to look at the Bishop of Rome as being one of a number, half dozen or so patriarchs, that the Bishop of Rome has uh, power over Rome, but, but, but is not primary over the other patriarchs, the other bishops of Constantinople and Jerusalem and other places. And then, of course, you've got the Protestant response, and Protestants, who, who often don't agree on much with each other, all agree that the, that the Bishop of Rome is not who the Roman Catholic Church would say the Bishop of Rome is. He's not the, the, you know, the long-term designate of, of the apostles, successor of the apostles. So it's complicated to trace uh, all this and to speak neutrally about all this. It's also hard historically to try and, and uh, connect all the, the, the lines here. Um, Mark Knoll, a prominent church historian, he used to be at Wheaton, he then uh, is at Notre Dame, I think he's retired, continues to write. Uh, Knoll argues that, that the, uh, the role of the Bishop of Rome, again, the Pope, the Papacy, the Vicar of Christ, the Holy Father, all those different titles, that the uh, role of the Bishop of Rome is something that gets resolved by theological conviction, not by historical research. Uh, but what is clear is that there are moments when the bishop, when the office of the Bishop of Rome is advanced. Uh, in some cases, that's because of the extraordinary competence of the person in that office. So we saw this with uh, Leo I. Uh, as he sort of weighed in with some uh, theological acumen and helped steer uh, one of the early councils. We saw this with Gregory the Great, who's just a masterful, uh, not just theologian, but is, uh, is a masterful administrator and diplomat. Uh, other times, um, we're going to see that the, the, the prestige of the Bishop of Rome sort of gets tied to Rome, and as Rome gains power or has money, then that, that sort of spills over to the Bishop of Rome. And some of these things can be iterative. Um, and then, then you also have events like the one that we started with, the, the coronation of Charlemagne by Pope Leo III. This advances the office of the Bishop of Rome. So in today's episode, we're doing this flyover of the Middle Ages and uh, paying particular attention to uh, the early Middle Ages. Now, it's impossible, <laughs> let's recognize, it's impossible to do justice to the Middle Ages in a couple of lectures. It's a thousand years, and it's uh, tens of thousands of square miles, maybe more than that. Um, so, you know, we, we can't accurately and adequately summarize this quickly. And, and it's also difficult to summarize because Historians don't even agree on what's happening. They can't even agree on whether or not we're going to call it the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, Christendom, Late Antiquity. I mean, all of these titles have different um, understandings of what's going on and what's happening. I have been uh, reading uh, Rodney Stark. Uh, he was a, a, a professor, sort of a sociology of religion historian uh, at the University of Washington for a while. He's now down at Baylor. And uh, he wrote a book called How the West Won. 
And, uh, and he makes a strong case that the reason uh, the Middle Ages were called dark is simply because of the anti-Christian bias of some historians. He argues that they're not nearly as dark as people have said. And again, some claim they're dark because of, of the way Roman, the Roman Empire fell and all of civilization fell. Some say that they're dark because we just don't have many historical documents from this time. So, so there's a whole lot of moving pieces here. But um, interestingly, Stark argues that, that the uh, literacy rates are low during the Middle Ages, but they were low during the Roman Empire. It was only the educated elite that actually uh, were able to read. Uh, he says, yes, the number of people living in cities goes down when we go into the Middle Ages. They move out of the big, you know, they move out of Rome and some of the other big cities. Um, but that's because those cities had no function other than as uh, sort of outposts of the Roman Empire. He says, yes, trade dies down, um, but only certain types of trade. He goes, a lot of what they say by trade dying down was just the, um, the money coming into Rome. It was just the, uh, the, the fact that uh, people were giving their tribute to Rome because they'd been conquered. And actually, real trade starts once uh, the Roman Empire falls. Stark also makes a fascinating uh, set of arguments that it's, it's after the Roman Empire falls that society starts to really advance because you now have competition, and competition is what leads to innovation. So you have competition in agriculture, and you see that with the advent of you know, windmills and new types of plows, and you have, uh, you have uh, competition in terms of the military, so you've got new kinds of weapons. You've got, competitions, you've got competition that leads to innovation in music and in the arts and other things. So. Um, so cannot do an accurate job. All that is say, cannot do this big, high-level, definitive argument of what happens in the Middle Ages. But there are some things that you need to know at this moment as, as culture pivots. When I was a college pastor, one of the lines that I used with students was to say, look, you cannot consider yourself well-educated if you haven't read the most popular, most influential book of all time. Like, if you haven't read and are not conversant with the Bible, you cannot claim to be an educated person. And in fact, you don't know what the Bible says. And I would say the same thing about Jesus. You cannot claim to be an educated person if you don't understand the, the, the claims of the most significant person to ever live. So to you, I'm saying something slightly different. You cannot claim to be an educated person if you do not know what happens during the thousand years uh, of the Middle Ages. And, um, and this is important. And, and my joke, probably getting old by now, you have to know more than you learn watching Monty Python movies. So we have talked about the Middle Ages uh, already uh, in previous episodes. I've already talked about it today, the fact that it starts with the fall of Rome and then it's gonna go to up till the Renaissance. It's gonna go from roughly 500 to roughly 1500. Um, it's divided into three big sections, the early Middle Ages, you know, AKA the Dark Ages, late modernity, um, the high Middle Ages, and then the late Middle Ages. And uh, the High Middle Ages uh, pick up around 1,000 and run to 1,300. Uh, this is where things are at their best. 
but it's also in some senses where things are at their worst. This is where you've got the Crusades, this is where you've got the Black Plague, uh, the Great Schism, uh, Hundred Years' Wars, I think starts here. So um, the late Middle Ages is gonna lead up, is, is actually you're starting to see some significant decay, you're gonna be moving towards the Renaissance, the Age of Discovery, and the Reformation. So today I wanna share uh, seven quick, briefly share seven things to know about the early Middle Ages, and then in the next episode, episode 22, we'll look at the High Middle Ages, paying particular attention to the Great Schism, which is where the church in the East, uh, the Orthodox Church, and the church in the West, the Catholic Church, sort of goes separate ways. So, um, by the way, part of the reason that uh, you know one lecture is not enough it's not only what you don't know about the Middle Ages, it's what you know that ain't so about the Middle Ages. So I hear people say, in the Middle Ages, everybody drank beer all the time because you couldn't drink the water. <laughs> uh, or in the Middle Ages, uh, everybody lived in a castle and uh, King Arthur was running around with the Knights of the Round Table and in the Middle Ages, the church was busy burning witches all the time and uh, life was kind of slow and boring. Yeah, pretty much all that's wrong. Um, you could drink the water, not everywhere, not always, and they drank a lot of beer, um, but um, uh, the church was not generally busy chasing witches, that's much later um, and much briefer. And King Arthur actually, uh, you know, King Arthur's sort of like Robin Hood, not a real person. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but there's a lot of Arthurian legends about him uh, not everybody lived in a castle, all of that. So anyway, here's, here's the things that, that you need to know to understand the Middle Ages. Number one, the feudal system developed. So um, there were reasons why Rome collapsed. When it collapsed, uh, one of the things that happened is that, uh, one of the reasons that it happened is because Rome stopped expanding. When they stopped expanding, they stopped having slaves. Uh, you, slavery wasn't racial, slavery was you got conquered and or you perhaps you fell into debt, but they, they ran out of slaves. And they also ran out of their ability to, um, to sort of police all of the area and so trade went down. So when all of this thing, when all of this happens, um, and why it happens is not my, my purpose, but when all these things happen, you fall into a completely different economy. You don't have slaves. So what is developed is a feudal system, and the feudal system, which was much more local, it's not the big Roman Empire, you now have all these, all these independent little fiefdoms. Fief was the word for um, land. You had kings, um, but the kings were were probably something if you were a serf that you had, you had no interaction with the king, there was some sort of um, noble, there was some sort of vassal who had land. And that vassal was almost a law unto themselves, and you got access to land, so you weren't a slave, you might even actually by some means own the land, but you didn't always control the land, and so the king sort of has the land, and the king gives land to the vassals and the knights, and they, uh, in turn, are going to guarantee that they will fight for the king when the king needs protection or when the king is on the warpath. And then the, the, the vassals got all these uh, serfs that are working for them, farming the land. Um, 
So there's more to it than that. You've also got uh, you've got some clergy uh, running around there. You've got the knights, but uh, but until about 1100, that's sort of the system that you had. You have just a few a few systems. You've got the king, you've got the vassals, and you've got the serfs. And uh, there was a lot of poverty at that point. Um, so um, things are less than stable, and the the institution, which leads to point number two, the institution that steps in as things are not stable is the church. So point number one, a feudal system develops. Point number two, uh, you end up with this medieval synthesis. So over time, um, the church fills in the void that is, that is left by the collapse of Rome, uh, which in one sense only makes sense. I mean, you have... <laughs> The church doesn't have a lot of competition there. So you don't have a news media. You don't have major employers. You don't have state and local government. Um, you don't have a university system, right? You don't have any of those things in place. You've got now just a feudal system. And uh, the church is going to step up and sort of step in. The other, the, when historians talk about this, they'll say, when Rome collapsed, there were three logical replacements. One, uh, so one would be the eastern half of the Roman Empire stepping in. A second would be Islam, and the third was would be the church. And it turns out that um, it was the church. And so, over time, uh, and it's it's different, obviously, in different parts of the Roman Empire. But over time, the bishops and other clergy, who are the most educated people around, are the ones that gain power. And they're the ones that increasingly are, are running things. And as we move deeper into the Middle Ages, the church continues to amass power. And at some point, it ends up with a lot of power. Now, not everybody believes. Uh, there are reasons why, um, prior to some of the scientific revolution, uh, prior to Darwin, prior to some others, that uh, many people are left without any uh, options of, of how did we get here. Um, but not wherever you go, not everybody believes, or certainly not everybody believes that, the, that what the church is teaching is, is correct. Um, and by the way, not everybody feels like the church gaining this power is a good thing. As a rule, the church always struggles with secular power. But as we move into the Middle Ages, Europe is going to be shaped by the synthesis, the medieval synthesis uh, of politics, social order, religious practices, economic relationships, education, all being um, sort of based on the Christian faith as expressed by the Roman Catholic Church and as supported by secular power. Secular rulers are going to be sort of endorsing the church, which is going to be the architecture for all of society. So I share this because if you're an American, and I'm believing that most of you listening to this are, this is sort of the antithesis of the separation of church and state. Now, the separation of church and state, which we're going to look at way down the line, 
is not always what people think. The, the concerns of the founders were, were not that the church was going to influence the state. The concern was that the state was going to control the church. But what you've got here is uh, a really a, 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 these, these two entities are merged in, in medieval Europe. Number three, third big thing that happens is icons become important and they become divisive. So icons, you know, not whatever you're thinking about that Apple computer um, that is on your Apple computer or your iPad, uh, and not mega influential, um, you know, cultural elites, uh, but religious paintings that were uh, popular around this time and that actually you don't talk about an icon being painted, you talk about it being uh, written. They're educational, they got a specific form and format to them. Um, and they're popular, especially in the Orthodox Church. But th they're seen as aids by, in the Orthodox Church uh, and Catholic Church. They're seen as aids in worship and devotion. So these become more and more popular. They also become controversial, with uh, part of the church arguing that they should be banned because they are idols and they're breaking the second commandment per Exodus chapter 20. So the other part of the church would say they're not being worshipped, they're being venerated, uh, which is different, it's not worship, and that they are, uh, they're not idols, they're icons and their aids in worship and so anyway all this is going to lead to a big controversy so in 722 a muslim leader uh, ordered the destruction of all icons in what is now uh, syria he wants to he wants all of the images of jesus to be destroyed which is okay not that surprising that's sort of consistent with muslim understanding they're very down on images Right? You might remember the cartoonist that got in trouble for drawing an image of, uh, I think it was Muhammad, uh, not Allah. But, uh, so, they, so there's a, an order given to destroy the icons. That was not surprising. What was surprising was that the emperor of the eastern half of the Roman Empire orders the destruction of icons in Constantinople, in particular uh, of a large icon of Jesus that he wants destroyed. So he issues this uh, order. The patriarch of Constantinople, and we'll talk more about some of these titles uh, in the next episode, but think the bishop of Constantinople uh, rebels against this, as do many other people. So a number of soldiers go to destroy this image of Jesus, and the women uh, revolt and kill the soldiers. So um, this battle between, uh, between the iconoclasts who are against icons and the uh, iconophiles who like them is going to be called the iconoclast controversy, and it is going to shake the area for about 100 years. Um, the first phase coincided, um, the first phase ended in 787, when the Seventh Ecumenical Council, so there were, remember, seven big councils. Started the Council of Constantinople, and uh, excuse me, started the Council of uh, Nicaea, and then you got the Council of Constantinople, and we've looked at these, and these are the big conclaves where everybody gets together. And there are supposedly seven of these where everybody sort of agrees with what was found. 
uh, Catholics, Orthodox, um, Protestants, everybody says yes. The, the creeds that come out of these first seven councils, everybody signs up for. Well, so the seventh and the last of these uh, councils was held. Uh, it was called uh, to, to meet in, um, it was called to meet uh, in Nicaea. So the seventh ecumenical council takes place in Nicaea. And the council affirmed the view of the iconophiles. So they said, right-believing, Orthodox Christians, Orthodox now, small o, sorry, that's confusing. Uh, but um, that the affirmation was that icons are not um, illegal. They need to be allowed. So... The emperor of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, Emperor um, Leo V, that's also confusing because you just had Pope Leo III. You would think that everybody could have just gotten together and agreed on some of these things and made them simple, but they didn't. So now the emperor, Leo V, he will come back out and reject the findings of the council and you'll have another um, 30 years of uh, sort of fighting against icons and then being destroyed and then... Uh, he dies, and uh, somebody new comes on, and that person is pushed aside uh, by, by a woman, Empress Theodora, uh, Theodora. She proclaims the restoration of icons, goes back to the Seventh Ecumenical Council. And uh, so <laughs> in all of this, uh, you're seeing the East and West grow further apart because while this council is called to be held in Nicaea, which again is right outside of Constantinople, they did not invite the West. So they don't reach out um, to uh, Charlemagne and others uh, because they didn't think they had anything to contribute. And this is just sort of further um, arguing for the splitting of the church. And Charlemagne responds, by the way, when he's not invited by saying that uh, the Eastern Church is a filthy pond of hell. So uh, yes, you're gonna see the Great Schism is, is rapidly approaching, but um, Anyway, so um, the East and West almost are going to get back together when Charlemagne is briefly thinking about uh, asking this Empress Theodora uh, to marry him, and that's, those were obviously very political, but she gets deposed before that can happen. So all I'd say, feudal system comes along, you got the medieval synthesis is the second thing, icons become an issue and become controversial. Number four, the church calendar emerges during this time. So um, we, we follow the Gregorian calendar, which is slightly modified, and it's got you know leap years and all that stuff. It gets, it gets fine-tuned, but there was a church calendar. And I talked about this because when we go into Advent, that's the beginning of the church calendar. It starts, it starts with, the, uh, with the announcement of the, to, of the angel Gabriel to Mary that she's going to conceive and give birth. So you've got, you start, the year starts over, with the conception uh, in Mary of Jesus. And so you follow the life of Jesus. So this new calendar comes out. The calendar is important. We follow it. The, the Western church follows it briefly. You've got Christmas. You've got Easter. You've got Holy Week. Some churches follow it much more uh, rigorously, and there's all kinds of feast days, and there's saints days and other things. The point is the calendar becomes sort of part of the way the church is completely uh, dominant in culture. Everything is following this church calendar. 
And uh, a person living at this moment, their life, you know, when they're born, they're to be baptized. And then all the significant events of their life are going to be things that are going to take place in the church, or there's going to be some sacrament or event around it. The church and state are together. The church is the state. The state is the church. Uh, you had to, uh, you, you were participating in this. It was, it was not just called the Middle Ages, the medieval period. It's also called Christendom. So the church um, is in charge. Number five, Vikings become a problem. I'm not sure if you put this together but uh, in the late 8th century, the, the Vikings were going to begin to ransack Europe. Um, the first being they, they go to the, this um, island off of, great, off of England, uh, eastern coast of England. They go to this monastery uh, that is called Linzenfeld or something like that, Lin, Linzenfarn, uh, and they're going to raid it. And what the Vikings discover is that monasteries are great places to go pillage because uh, the monks generally don't fight back. There's lots of wealth. There's lots of, of trade and things happening around them. And so for the next few hundred years, the Vikings are going to be, uh, are going to be coming in and looting and raiding. Um, so a bigger issue, um, most people when they think of, of the challenges of the Middle Ages think of the Black Plague. And of course, we're going through a pandemic right now, so um, sympathetic to the challenges. By the way, um, as of today, as I'm recording this, uh, I believe I've heard that there have been 350,000 uh, Americans that have died because of COVID, which is 0.1%. Um, in the Black Plague, the, the percentage is going to be more like 50 to 60% uh, of people in a village dying. So uh, obviously there's going to be somewhere around 75 million people in Europe who die. Uh, so again, in the United States right now, we have 350,000, 75 million. And, and when you add in Asia and other things, some, some will say the number is not just 100 million, it's 200 million people are going to die. So there's the challenge of that. That's going to come, um, that's going to come next as we go to the high Middle Ages. But you have the challenge, a very significant disruptive event of the Vikings coming down and plundering and raping and pillaging. And they're more barbaric as a rule. The, the Vikings are more barbaric than the barbarians. And uh, they're going to move inland over time. And initially, it's just a few ships that are coming. The, the histories of the Vikings will, will just say, you know, you've got these monasteries that will rebuild every year for a while, but then just get pillaged again uh, the next year, and they'll say 300 ships came this time, and then you get up to 700 ships came. So, I mean, the number of Vikings that are coming keeps going up. So there's different theories as to why uh, the Vikings were coming down. Some say we got a mini ice age and, and you couldn't grow crops in Scandinavia, so they're, they're more troubled. Some say uh, they just found the monasteries, easy places to loot. Some say they're avenging. Uh, Charlemagne had 4,000 Scandinavians uh, baptized, forcibly baptized, and then killed. Um, so there's a number of things happening. Eventually, what will happen, and it takes a long time, but eventually the Vikings will be given land and saying, in exchange for not 
pillaging, not ransacking, not raping and looting. We're going to give you land and we're going to leave you alone. But they are, and um, they're called, uh, they're called Norsemen, and then eventually it's just going to be called uh, Normandy. Uh, but they become Christians. So they're going to be acclimated. They're going to become French. They're going to become British. They're going to fit in, uh, and uh, that's going to change. So uh, there's a couple other things. Let me just go to, to sort of end it up here. There is a renaissance of short of sorts, which brings us back to Charlemagne. So um, when people talk about the Renaissance, they're generally talking about this uh, sort of self-conscious embrace of classical models of learning and thinking and literature and art and architecture that, that is going to be uh, found at the last part of the late Middle Ages that is going back to uh, Roman Empire, and even before that, to some extent, to Greeks and, and others. And uh, it's, it's considered a time of learning and enlightenment. The Renaissance is going to lead itself into the Enlightenment. Uh, we'll talk about all of that, but there were a number of Renaissances that happened. So when you hear capital R Renaissance, they're talking about what's going to happen in the 1500s, 1600s, but uh, there is a what is called the Carolingian Renaissance that happens um, under Charlemagne. So um, one of the key things is uh, that Charlemagne is going to, when he gets appointed to be the Holy Roman Emperor, is he is going to now sort of unite all of Western Europe. He's going to have more of Western Europe under his control than was under control, more of Western Europe that was under control it was under control during the Roman Empire. And, uh, and he is going to be uh, a guy who is going to bring education. And he is going to promote trade. And he is going to promote the church. He is going to promote uh, not necessarily peace. He's, he tends to be a warrior. But he's a very able administrator. He's a very capable diplomat. And uh, a lot of... A lot of, of uh, Trade and other things are going to come back. And so he's going to have a common currency. He's going to establish a written language. He's going to establish standard measurements. He's going to commission buildings. He's going to uh, have 30 cathedrals built. He's going to have 470 monasteries built. Uh, this is the period where castles are being built. So it is a, there's a flourishing of life that is going to take place. And um, He's going he's gonna, to reach out and bring the best scholars together. He will remain largely illiterate, uh, but he is going to bring scholars together to have them learning from each other. He's going to have them create uh, systems to teach his kids. He's going to create a standard, standardized curriculum. He's going to create uh, libraries and make sure that every... Um, Every church has a copy of the Latin Vulgate of the Bible. He's going to push liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church down on people. Uh, he is going to um, educate the clergy. He is going to promote harsh laws against paganism. So he is going to pull together. So it, it, this is a simplistic statement, but if the Roman Empire had this big empire where everybody was sort of cooperating together, and then you go into the Dark Ages and the early Middle Ages where you've got all these feudal states that are operating independently of each other, 
under the Carolingian Renaissance, under Charlemagne, these things are going to come back together again for a while. Now, when he dies, um, his son is going to take over. Uh, his son is, seems to be a fairly good guy. His son is going to hand it over to his three sons, and it's all going to fall apart, uh, which Rodney Stark, by the way, will say is a good thing. He will say, when you've got everybody operating under one common centralized control, uh, efficiency and productivity and innovation, all those things go away. Um, so uh, the point is, uh, there's going to be this, this renaissance that is going to happen, the Carolingian renaissance that's going to happen uh, in the 800s. Then it's going to die out. It will come back again. The, the Holy Roman Emperor, you, you won't have another Holy Roman Emperor after Charlemagne for a while, but then the Germans are going to pick it up, and they'll actually carry it into, the, I think, like in the 1800s. I think Hitler at some point was making a claim to be uh, Holy Roman Emperor, uh, reaching back into that. So I have given you a lot in this episode. Uh, I've left out important figures like Joan of Arc and... Uh, uh, important things like the development of gunpowder and all the, the ways that this is going to change things. This, of course, is the time. Uh, I didn't tie this together, but this is when Islam is growing so rapidly uh, through Europe. But um, in the next podcast, we're going to move into the high Middle Ages, uh, which is where a lot of the action takes place in the Great Schism, uh, the Crusades, the Plague, Hundred Years' War. And, uh, and in spite of that, it's a great time because this is also where we're going to see a flourishing of education. Higher education is going to get its start. Gothic architecture is going to get its start. Um, you're going to argue, you can't argue, capitalism sort of takes a big step forward here. Got some political advances, the Magna Carta and other things. So uh, <laughs> I'm not, uh, again, I'm sorry. I'm, I've raced through so much material. But um, let me say, um, this is an important and fascinating period, and when we come back next time, we're going to look at the High Middle Ages and pay particular attention to the Great Schism of the 11th century. See you then.